Welcome to Smooth Brain. <laughs> the the wait, back... you... wait, are you starting? Yes. Wait, give me give me a sec though. Can you give me one sec? <laughs> listening to Smooth Brain, the neuroscience podcast where we discuss data and theory like we would if it was post-conference at the bar, which we can no longer do due to coronavirus. Today's episode is about social isolation, which of course is the reason why we made this podcast at all. Enjoy. So yeah, we're going to go around and introduce ourselves. My name is Marianne Redden, and I'm a postdoc in Jamil Zaki's lab, and I study mostly the neural processes underlying empathy. Brittany, I tag you. All right. Um, I'm Brittany. Um, I'm currently a PhD student at the University of Colorado Andrews Medical Campus, and I also work as a clinical specialist for Medtronic. Ale. Oh, Alejandro. Oh. <laughs> um, my name is Alejandro de la Vega. I'm a research scientist at the University of Texas at Austin. And I basically research and make tools to make science better. That's my goal. And so, specifically neuroscience, trying to make the research more robust by making automated tools uh, to make it easier to do high quality research. Megan. I'm an analytics leader at Lumen Technologies. Um, I really like pasta and cappuccinos. And <laughs> in fact, we were delayed. Yeah, we delayed our start today because Megan was getting pasta and cappuccino. Priorities, life priorities. <laughs> today we're talking about uh, the neuroscience of social isolation. I think it's something that we're all experiencing right now with quarantine. Uh, and probably a lot of the negative effects of it. So we're going to broadly talk about how it impacts health in both humans and in animals. Um, yeah, so... Um, I was eating pasta because I was homely. <laughs> we can give some background that, on that. There are studies that show that isolation and, and hunger might be correlated. We'll come back to it. <laughs> so... A, what's, a, what's your end? Well, yeah, what is the end? The end, of, end of Megan, I guess. An <laughs> end of one. Uh, yeah, so I, I guess I'll just set the scene and then we'll move forward. Um, everyone's being isolated right now quite physically. So most of the neuroscience of social isolation really has to do with perceived isolation and perceived loneliness. So usually they ask you, how lonely are you? And a certain amount of ways, which we could do right now. And they correlate your sense of loneliness, which usually has more to do with the quality of your relationships and not so much actually seeing people from the way they studied it before. Um, and then they relate that to health outcomes, such as like your immune system function, um, things about like your heart um, health and sleep is an important one as well. To warm up, do you guys want to do the little the little quiz here on how lonely are you? Let's do it. Okay. Let's do it. Got this on my screen. All right. I think that's it. Uh, okay. Objective isolation 
uh, can be measured by assigning one point for each of the following. Are you unmarried or non-cohabitating? Who's, who is unmarried? I have a point. Alejandro oh. wins this round. <laughs> who lives alone? No, the win lose. <laughs> I live alone too. Megan, you live alone. Why are you? She's like not even paying attention. <laughs> who has less than point? <laughs> who had less than monthly contact with one's children? I don't have any. Uh, don't None have of us children. have children, so we all get a point here. Being that we're in our thirties, why don't we? Why don't we count? animals i i'm on i'm on the fence about that that doesn't really count i have a lot of animals <laughs> i don't know if it helps and and marianne perceived loneliness is that a yeah and i want to win this quiz <laughs> um had less monthly contact with other family members had less than monthly contact i feel i do contact my family uh, we define contact as uh, virtual or physical. Yeah. Yeah. So in this a little, contact a preview includes, of future discussions. Yeah. This includes the way that they measure it here includes telephone, includes email, virtual contact, okay. whatever. Uh, which I, mm-hmm. yeah, I argued that would be, it's a different thing. Having phone calls for sexually. I definitely have people. contact with family at least once a month. Yeah. yeah. If mm-hmm. anything more now, but you know. Yeah. That's. Okay. okay. Had less than monthly contact with friends. I think monthly, barely, but way less than before. And did not participate in organizations such as social clubs or resident groups, religious groups, or committees. Did not do that. I still participate in, in organizations. <laughs> Um, your commie, your commie church. My, my commie <laughs> I don't know if that counts as social contact, though. Um, social contact. I don't know. I feel like I get four out of five here. How about you guys? You just a one for me. Yeah, I, the, I think I like two. It's kind of like you want to rate these things on a scale because, like, the quality of the contact and how close yeah. you feel to people. Yeah, That's a, I, I think that gives you a pretty rough idea because I mean, honestly, to me, those are obviously like pretty huge things that are going to make somebody more or less lonely, especially the, um, you know, the, the habitation situation. Because it's like that from a personal experience in COVID, I mean, it's just I, I can't even compare to people that are like living alone because it's just so much easier to not be bored when I live with somebody, you know, and every single well, day we can... I- hang out with each other, talk to each other, like help each other out with like, if I'm stressed out, she can cook, you know, these little things are, I think that's a huge one. Yeah. I mean, you have that instant like social support. Um, I would also argue kind of how we were talking about earlier, how I've just been so busy since COVID started. I, I never had a break and I generally never felt any bouts of loneliness. Like if anything, I wish the days were longer so that I could sleep more. But I'm in a different situation, right? Like I have right. essentially a full-time job where I'm, I build things and then I'm also in grad school where I'm writing. So it's, I'm just, I just, there's just a lot going on for me specifically, but. Yeah. Um, no, I bet you that's a pretty, that makes sense in the sense that like a lot of people 
use their jobs also to escape sometimes mm-hmm. feelings of loneliness because it does keep your yeah. mind busy. It does keep you engaged in the task. So I think part of loneliness yeah. is also related to sort of like boredom and not having enough to do, which mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have been experiencing lately, you know? I, yeah, and I, I think also... You're going to okay. disagree? Yeah, I want to hard but, disagree wait, but, on it being boredom. I think it's very different so, from boredom. I, I was going to say, before you give your point, I would mm-hmm. also... Uh, add on to what Ali was just saying and say that I love my job. The writing is okay, right? My job genuinely has me thinking analytically, constructively, logically, practically, in, in so many different ways that it always keeps me busy on that task. And I, I love doing what I do. So I think also um, just enjoyment, right? For your job. So for example, if I was incredibly busy, but I hated working, um, I think I would have a different answer. Yeah, I'd have a different perspective. Yeah. 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 I have plenty to do to the point where it's like I feel overburdened. And then I like Mm -hmm. also feel like, yeah, so I'm never bored. I'm usually at the point where I just reach it, like where I'm just so overwhelmed with too many obligations that I just kind of crack, you know, and that things just become Mm -hmm. like, it's like it's not it's not boredom it's just like an utter sense of meaninglessness like it's mm-hmm. it's not boredom i'm gonna say the word and i'll say it wrong that, that little french word ennui what i used to pronounce <laughs> it in, I, I pronounced it in nui up until uh, yeah up until recently yeah, when i said it in like a therapy a, session <laughs> and your therapist was like what is that what does that mean <laughs> Well, you know, Marianne, I actually, now that you you pointed that out, I, it's, yeah, I totally agree. I, what I meant to say really was that I think it can be a form of escapism. Uh, you know, you can sometimes distract yourself away, just generally speaking from negative feelings, but it's not really getting at the root cause or at the root, uh, I guess, uh, you know, lack of that you're trying to fill in. And that's why it's never, you never hear stories of people escaping loneliness and it's working out. <laughs> actually yeah, I mean? no there was a study on that hold on um, <laughs> there was an animal study that shows that socially isolated rats have delayed benefits in neurogenesis from exercise so the more isolated you are the less of a positive effect you get from exercise that fucking sucks. the less of a positive effect yeah like because you know like yeah. exercise promotes neurogenesis which was like you know help alleviate depression yeah, yeah, right yeah. Yeah. yeah, we should also explain some of these things too, since this should be like an accessible uh, discussion. Neurogenesis means more neurons are being born. Often, like uh, they don't have roles assigned to them yet, so they can go and repair other parts of your brain, maybe, or help you know grow new connections. Uh, and that's supposed to help alleviate depression uh, in ways that I don't really know the details about. Maybe Brittany does. <laughs> it's really interesting, though. I would have not expected that, but I guess it makes sense because in some ways, like. I mean, exercise, like, it's not like you can just feel amazing if you're still missing something in your life or you're lonely. Like, you know, it's going to help. Exactly, yeah. Exercise is helpful, but a picture of somebody who's really, you know, everything is going perfectly for them, it's like all of it, right? It's not ever one piece or another. It's a really, like, a complete, uh, you know, picture. Yeah. Yeah, and um, you can also go as far as saying that, I was telling Marianne earlier that, in biomedical research, we'll, we'll use rats or mice. And if we want to study chronic stressful situations or sorry, chronic stress, what we'll do is we'll 
keep them isolated. Um, there's nothing in their cages. It's basically them and their child, and that's about it. Um, and we do that for maybe 10 days, and it'll elicit a physiological stress response um, that's indicative of it being you know, long-term or chronic. So um, you can kind of use that logic and say, okay, well, social isolation in humans might cause a similar um, physiological response, which a chronic physiological stress response is still a pretty big deal. It's a very um, taxing uh, response to the body. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe we can talk a little bit about like the theory behind that, right? So the idea being that humans are social animals and a lot of the animals that Brittany's talking about that are being studied are, are also social animals. Um, and so our survival mm-hmm. is dependent upon being in a group, right? So your connections with yeah. that group are important, but if you become isolated from your group, you usually vocalize or animals will vocalize. We will vocalize like, come find me <laughs> kind of a thing because it's yeah. a huge threat. If you are isolated from the group, right? You are now vulnerable to predation. Um, and it's probably also harder for you to get food. If you're like collective hunters, definitely mm-hmm. gonna be more difficult for you to get those resources. Um, so the idea is like when you are isolated, mm-hmm. your stress response should go up. You should make more alarm calls. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and then, uh, yeah, your immune system tends to drop is something I've seen, but that's probably related to, you know, your stress system being overactivated and then also, and also sleep being impacted. And so the idea on sleep being impacted is that you can't be safe when you're sleeping now because you're not in a sleep, a safe environment. So that you wake up a bit more like micro awakenings or something they're called, um, and being more hypervigilant you- in your sleep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can imagine that if you're not getting good sleep, you're constantly stressed out um, as a result of being socially isolated, your cortisol is up, right? So it just comes back to stress in the immune system. Um, But also to add on to that, so Dr. Anthony Klein at University, I think think it's UPenn, um, he essentially built this massive lab on enriched environment in animals. being a good um, rehabilitation strategy for incredibly chronically stressed um, rats. And so he applied that same logic in humans. Um, so that's just another like tell of how important just social support and, and how detrimental social isolation can be. So what was the um, enriched yeah. environment that he gave humans? So um, <laughs> I want to say it's probably just living that's in a house so with your spouse. <laughs> <laughs> So Marianne, if you surround yourself with the things that you like, mm-hmm. um, maybe that could be an example of a rich environment. I want to say his studies were more, um, they were more focused on animals. And I want to say clinicians probably, you know, use that logic, use like all that research um, to apply to humans. So I didn't, I don't, not really familiar with that research. Um, but he essentially built this massive like rehabilitation uh, resilience center. I'm pretty sure it's the University of Pennsylvania. But yeah, it's it's really interesting and and just yes, really I think cool. I met that guy once actually a long time ago. Yeah, he yeah, yeah yeah he uh, yeah he worked under Teresa. Um, yeah. Cool. Way back when, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm imagining like huge like person hamster wheels and like <laughs> chew blocks and shit. Yeah. Isn't that what they put well, that, in cages? <laughs> so can I um, uh, just if I could switch to one thing real quick? 
uh-huh. which is that I was just started got me thinking, you know, earlier you did had us do a little exercise to see some, I think what I would call them like risk factors for loneliness, right? Mm-hmm. And we just talked about how loneliness is really a neuroscientific, you know, concept that is actually affecting your like neurochemical balance. Like it's like really deep, you know? And so that mm-hmm. would also imply to me as anything with the brain, it, it varies between individuals, right? And so the one thing I thought about that, that survey that you had us do is that was really like risk factors for loneliness, not how lonely do you feel, Yeah. right? And yeah. I think one yeah. thing that I've seen a little bit is that there's a lot of evidence that people that are more, I don't know if the term emotionally resilient is the right term, but p- people are clearly going to vary hugely on this. And I can attest to this mm-hmm. because I feel like I'm a pretty... I'm a pretty socially needy person. Uh, you know, like in grad school, I was always no. hanging out with people. I was always talking to people, but it hasn't affected me quite as bad as I thought this uh, isolation, you know? And so I guess mm-hmm. what I'm interested in is like, what are the things that are going to prevent you from having such a hard time right now? You know, like one of them may be, I don't know, age could be good. It could be good. It could be bad. And one of them could just be like some risk factors for loneliness. Cause I know for sure, like Nadia, she's had a harder time and she's got the same risk factors that I do. Right. Or the same protection you know, we're together. So that helps her, but she's had a harder time than I have. And so clearly like individual differences are huge here. Okay. So, so what, what do you think makes Nadia feel more or less lonely? Like what are things that you think would make her feel less lonely? Well, I'm not, well, actually that's an interesting one too, because if we're going to go there, I don't know if she wouldn't necessarily self-report feeling that lonely, but I think Mm -hmm. the isolation may sometimes have a greater effect you know, and just overall well-being. And so that's another thing. Some people may not realize they feel lonely. They may not have the self-awareness that some of us do that are psychologists and neuroscientists. So we think about our mental state so much that we realize, oh, we're experiencing this. Some people might just not feel well. And I think that's really dangerous, you know, because a lot of people don't even realize they don't feel well. So this is when we're talking about people might do things that, you know, self-harm, things of that nature, uh, you know? And, you know, to that point, we can argue that, Maybe I have experienced loneliness, but like I haven't actually, I guess like I so, like not isolated it, but essentially pinpointed that that was what I was feeling because I've just been so busy, right? I mean, I so you, I just thought about that right you're, now. You've had a lot of risk factors for loneliness, but you haven't necessarily experienced oh, it. Oh, for sure. And so probably not that I'm aware. Of that. We're gonna prove by the end of this thing that Brittany. You know is what? You're lonely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, you mentioned like risk factors and I'm kind of like, and self-awareness. And I'm like, what if I'm not aware that I feel lonely? I mean, for the most part, I cannot wait to go to bed at night, right? I'm exhausted. I'm tired. Um, and I, I wake up and I feel energetic and happy um, because I get to do what I, what I love every day. I know well, that sounds incredibly Grad cliche, students are definitely not a normal population. That's also true. Yeah. Grad students don't feel the way Brittany is describing. <laughs> Okay, can we right. also... Brittany, we... Brittany, your case study. Wait. <laughs> no, wait. No, no, no. Let me backtrack. I, you guys... Okay, so uh, how long did it take you to finish your PhD? Uh, it took me seven years. I, I, okay, so I, we both took the scenic route, right? Well, I mean, I, took, I definitely took the scenic route. I, I can't speak, but I, I think that I had my, my, I would say my first, like, five years, that was way, like, I did not feel this way. Maybe I feel this way yeah. because... I have a job. I know that like once I graduate is that was very creepy. Whatever just happened. <laughs> oh, it's going to keep happening. Um, 
It's, okay. It's okay. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, th- that's probably why I, maybe I feel like more optimistic for the future. Like once I finish this, I know I'm going to have like the job that I've always wanted. Right. That yeah. I currently I'm doing right now. So yeah. maybe, I don't know. Well, just to bring it to a larger point, I think it just goes to show that, you know, there are risk factors, but there are, mm-hmm. as anything in psychology, it's a complicated issue. It's it's really not easy enough to just boiling it down to like, if you experience yeah. this, you're going to feel lonely. It has to do with your genetics. It has to do with your where you are in life. It has to do with so many things. So, mm-hmm. you know, yep. we like to boil things down to something that's easy to explain. But at the end of the day, I think it's as complicated of a process as any other process in the brain that we study. It's probably mm-hmm. a lot to do with um, how you're interpreting your relationships, right? If you are seeing them as positive or not. I don't know. Did we mention this earlier? Like the, like the negative cycle of this, like where there's like some studies that mark loneliness in social networks. And when one person starts reporting loneliness and the people closest to them, both physically and like who had good relationships with them, start reporting it as well. And then it sort of like spreads mm-hmm. throughout the network. Uh, but like the idea is that when you are feeling lonely, um, you might for good reason become really defensive um, against new social relationships or be really skeptical uh, about Mm -hmm. social relationships. Uh, And so that defensiveness will make it harder for you to form new relationships and harder for you to feel connected with people, which then will reaffirm your loneliness. But the risk is pretty high because if you are actually physically socially isolated and you meet someone and you're not sure you could trust them, and they, you know, beat you up or something, you have no defenses, right? In, in a, yeah. yeah, so in a more dire, like, sort of, like, evolutionary-based scenario, right? Like, that's, like, a useful, so it becomes, like, a, a process of, like, being able to assess the reality of a situation, being able to assess, like, your degree of, like, being on guard and when to deploy it in the appropriate way. But so I want to give Megan a chance to talk since she hasn't said anything. And I know that she was prepared on some of the suicidality aspects of this. (laughs) Well, I was just going to talk to your point about assessing external factors, um, specifically the use of social media. Um, There are various studies that show when you limit social media, um, specifically in the population of university students that um, factors such as loneliness and depression decrease. And um, I think just from my personal life, um, I have seen that limiting what I'm seeing on social media can um, increase self-esteem, decrease depressive symptoms, And that probably is related to how, um, you know, I or others personally interpret what we're seeing on social media. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think, you know, I was actually just thinking about this. It's funny you bring this up because I just had a conversation with my wife about this. And because I was I was actually talking to her a little bit about how I think it's cool that technology can be used for good in this scenario. But a lot of the narrative is on how bad social media is. And I was thinking, you know, I'm really not jealous of teenagers, know. you know? And I think one of the things that I noticed is that I think the internet switched from being sort of like an anonymous place to just go explore and gain information to being your actual life. Right. So now it's like this 
that that's a whole other thing. I don't think we'll probably be able to go into too much detail, but you know, it's reflective of you as an individual, your social media. And I think that's from a psychological perspective, so dangerous, you know? I also think, um, essentially seeing a one-sided story on social media, um, people that are always wearing makeup or always in certain poses that, um, complement their body the best or, um, even in terms of speaking, they may always look um, like they're a very confident, competent person. You know, in reality, that's not who they so are. Are you speaking? Time. Sorry, go ahead. Are you speaking? Oh, so are you speaking generally that this is, like it could be a negative tool, or are you, um, or is this just specific to COVID, or just you know the hey, pandemic generally. and. And I think that's going to be an interesting point to tangle out. Maybe we can, you know, circle back to that later. Um, But there's some things that may be useful now that overall might have negative side effects. And and again, this, I think, relates to what I was saying earlier. These are all such complex issues that I think the media always wants to say this is good, this is bad. And what I want to wonder is, like, how can we look at, with research, look at what aspects of technology are useful, right? Which because that's the whole point of technology right it should be to make our lives better and unfortunately part of social media is that they kind of you're saying you know there's this like unrealistic thing and another part of it to me is that they gamified it right so there's this thing with likes and so really it's all about trying to maximize you know your social profile yeah and you know i think you've probably heard about this before but like instagram uh experimented with like removing the like the count on posts and that actually resulted in people feeling less bad about their own posts and so i think this is the sort of thing that society we need to look at because i think we sometimes throw the white flag and we're like oh well technology is just bad you know and it's like no it doesn't have to be like as we've shown so far in the pandemic like it's crucial actually and it's like without technology we wouldn't have a way to connect yeah one thing that was coming up in some of the reviews i was reading on loneliness like the way that they just describe loneliness has to do with the amount of control people feel over their ability to form social relationships and i think that like speaks to a lot of what you're saying about the internet because uh, at least i feel like it's the the internet can be a great tool but i don't think i have control over my social media timeline you know like when i scroll through that i know it's like algorithm selection like boosting by ads and whatever you know I don't really feel like I get to curate what I see and that I have control over that well yeah um so yeah so so, actually if anything it's actually being purposely manipulated to maximize some response in you so it's the opposite Yeah, right. And so then when you have this like distrust of the platform that you're using, but you can't necessarily disengage from it because then you're too far removed, especially in COVID world where you might not really have many other options of like checking in with people. Uh, yeah. It's kind of like, it's a, it's a messed up scenario. Like it's, it's a commodified social relation, which is, yeah. I know, it's like social relations are the we're supposed to be like the opposite of commodity. Like it was supposed to be our respite right. from that, right? Like and it's it's in there. And maybe and maybe that's why you know I mean, maybe that's why sometimes now you're saying you know, earlier we're talking about how some of us were had Zoom fatigue. But the nice thing about these Zoom calls when you actually get together a nice group of people, it's like it's not a social media thing. You it's just a way to connect with others, but there's no value 
associated with it necessarily. And I think that's the key, you know, like we can definitely have real social connections, maybe limited, not as good as real life through media. But when we add the aspect of value, that's when you really start messing with people's brains, you know? Yeah. Which I know we were like critiquing the study that found changes only in the striatum for loneliness because it's like, you know, striatum's involved with a lot of things, but I mean, now we're talking about value assignment. So you could leave out the brain and that's, I think just something from a psychological (laughs) perspective that I think when you're talking about your self image, you know what I mean? I think it's just really, it makes sense that, I mean, I wish I had more data. I'm just speculating as I do. Yeah. Um, so I have a question though, Megan. You said earlier that it increased. Do you know? Do you remember if it increased? Like, what kind of negative feelings did it increase? Did they did they manage to say if it was more loneliness or more like negative self image or? Um, the paper said loneliness and okay. uh, depressive symptoms. Um, well, that's actually. I mean, I would say that's surprising finding. So if that if that holds up, like that's actually. Uh, pretty counterintuitive thing right um i didn't think so to be honest that decreasing your social media decreased loneliness and depressive symptoms um i know that stigma um they completed a loneliness survey um actually this year um and it included 10,000 adults in the u.s and it showed that um about 70 percent of young adults showed that they sometimes or always felt alone or that no one understood them. And it was a greater percentage than in older adults. And um, that's really interesting, actually. Yeah. uh, Well, that that actually is surprising because I just found a study here that was saying that one of the biggest risk factors for being lonely, according to, oh, wait, it's the same study. Cigna, you said, right? 10,000 people. Hey, yeah. look, this, we're on the same study. Uh, <laughs> I thought it said that uh, older adults were more at risk for... It says the older, oldest Americans are among the loneliest. Oh, but that's after age 75. So, see, you know, that's really interesting because that's one thing I wanted to talk about. And maybe we can transition to that a little bit. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of studies that have been done on loneliness have been on older adults and so one of the reasons for that is that i think everybody has this image of like grandma and grandpa like in the nursing home they don't have enough social contacts and they get lonely so according to that sickness study that you brought up um or maybe it's a different study it's a study in journal psychology and aging i don't know if it's the same study but it said levels of loneliness begin to increase after about the age of 75 now to me as a psychologist generally speaking Aging actually has a lot of positive psychological benefits, right? So people actually Wait, generally you said feel happy. Aging? Yeah. So people you said actually aging? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, to a certain I think he means like like, you know, well, not not to like dementia. Specifically people <laughs> Great, feel I saw, happier. Specifically people aging. feel happier, you know? And so mm-hmm. I know there's like yeah. a stereotype of like cranky old people, but in general people have more positive interpretation of events when they're older. Mm-hmm. And so it's mm-hmm. somewhat surprising that you would have loneliness. So I think it, the way I interpret that is probably it's confounded by the social situation they're in, right? So they're not socially connected. Because mm-hmm. I would actually expect that younger people would feel lonely more easily because when I was a young person, you know, <laughs> when I was like in 22, like if I didn't go out for the weekend, I felt horrible. 
And now, you know, I still want to see my friends and have social connections, but I'm not, it's not as dire, you know? Mm -hmm. So I just think that's something Mm -hmm. that people sometimes don't think about when they see these studies. You have to think about, it's not just about the psychological phenomenon of aging. It's about the social situation of that population, you know? Sorry about the light. No, it's fine. Yeah. I guess, I I know, I kind of want to bring the attention back to what might be the difference between perceived loneliness, which maybe seems more subjective, and, like, actually being physically isolated. Because, like, at the start of quarantine, for example, I was living in a studio. I mean, I still live in a studio, but it was uh, further away from anybody that I was, like, starting to make friends with. I was in a new place in general and a new job. And uh, I didn't see another human being for, I and think, was, the and first... it was kind of ghetto. Okay. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, it. It, it was a little... Ru- yeah, I had a lot of problems in this apartment. Yeah, I mean, like, I didn't have running water sometimes. Like, there were issues... <laughs> The garbage would pile up. There was sanitation issues. There's a yeah. There were stressors, um, yeah. which which made things worse. Yeah, <laughs> which made it worse. And that was predating quarantine, right? But in quarantine, yeah. like I went the first, I think, forty days without really seeing another human being at all. Maybe just like yeah. one of my neighbors who I gave like a ride to the grocery store like once or twice. You know, like yeah. And there was the first time in my life that, like, I felt lonely and isolated before this, right? But then I was, like, mm-hmm. I'm actually, like, physically alone. Right. And uh, I would say I would say that affected my brain. <laughs> I think I felt like my posts on social media were more deranged than usual. <laughs> you know, I felt like I would have, like, peaks of, like, mania. I, I don't know if I want to call it mania, but, like, like a high-energy thing where it was, like, I need attention. I need attention. I need attention. I need to talk to a freaking somebody, right? But I had, like, nobody to talk mm-hmm. to. Um, and then, like, super, like, withdrawn moments, too. And my sleep also sucked. Mm-hmm. But, like, the only thing that really got me through it, I think, was just developing a routine. I, I don't even – I wouldn't even say that got me through it. It was just like a thing. Like how you threw it. Well, yeah, but it's like I would have time would have moved on anyway, right? That's <laughs> so. true. It helped. You. <laughs> it was helpful. But well, that's yeah. actually really interesting to me, though, because I think then is you're sort of talking about two different things. I think one of them is like some people feel lonely even in a situation where they have a lot of social contacts, and mm-hmm. then you're talking about social isolation. Yeah. Right. And I think anybody, there's going to be various factors, but even if you take the most, you know, least lonely person ever that normally doesn't feel lonely and you put them in a socially isolated situation, they're not going to do well. Yeah, no. Not not good for human beings. Yeah. Yeah. I think with the question of what the difference is between actual and perceived social isolation, we can definitely get into that. But um, the, research really shows that in terms of health outcomes, it doesn't matter. Um, Actual or perceived social isolation um, are huge factors in terms of early mortality and um, can be as much of a predictor of early mortality as smoking, um, having a sedentary lifestyle, uh, air pollution, In one article that I found, I thought this was so interesting, is that 
loneliness is as bad for you in terms of health outcomes as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Like, and you know, that goes, that really relates to this other study I found that it's a predictor of cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people don't appreciate the severity of it. We kind of take it for granted. And I, I, in some ways it's a public health crisis. It is. And then, you know, it also, I mean, I mean, I'm not sure what that paper, uh, like what the biomarkers or what indicators they actually used, but I mean, I can probably guess that, uh, stress hormones that also affect cardiovascular activity, you know, probably have something to do with that too. Yeah, kind of there's, a neuro, uh, there's also, a theory, like you said, rat models would suggest this, right? Mm-hmm. This is, yeah. I think, just a um, just a observational study that actually just found mortality was higher, you know, from really? cardiovascular disease, not from other factors like you know, yeah. like ruling out suicide and that sort of thing, just from cardiovascular mm-hmm. disease. So it there shows were, that yeah, that stress pathway is real. There were two yeah. studies that I saw that one like in rats and then replicated in humans that. And maybe you can expand on this, Brittany. Morning, like just waking levels of cortisol are much higher um, for isolated mm-hmm. um, animals and people, which I don't really know how to interpret that. What would like? What are the effects of like your morning cortisol being higher? Why would it be higher being isolated? I mean, I guess waking up and knowing there's no one around you. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that alone is. Just, I mean, I think it goes it, to the research that like mental concepts can turn into physiological responses Mm -hmm. right yeah that was my master's thesis was literally that it was stress um and prefrontal cortical processing um and yeah like just that link alone um and i think this is something just to like people that don't know as much about the science is that you know the prefrontal prefrontal cortex is going to be more involved with your higher level thoughts and ideas and concepts so maybe things like Mm -hmm. concepts of your self-worth concepts of your social isolation like how you perceive things and relating to Mm -hmm. megan's point you're saying it doesn't really matter your perceived versus real because your brain also makes it real you know so those thoughts become how you're like the lower level parts of your brain the stress hormones are actually responding Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. very real and it can eventually lead to mortality, increased mortality. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I would, I don't know. I don't, I'm going to spitball some theories here. I would uh, assume that some brainstem level nuclei are maintaining some representation of conspecifics around you. I don't know if there's studies that show this. Does that sound plausible? And then if it notices some deficit in that, it would it would react in some way that then like higher level so, areas would start. What's, I guess, what's the logic behind the The logic for me would be like, if you could stimulate certain parts of the periaqueal gray, mm-hmm. which is the midbrain, right? And so for people who aren't <laughs> aware, periaqueal gray tends to be involved in pain responses, but you can also like selectively stimulate um, columns in there and elicit defensive reactions like fight, flight, or freeze, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's an important mm-hmm. region for uh, relaying information to to the upper cortices, but also having these automatic reactions. Um, but yeah, but you can simulate certain aspects of there as well as like, um, I think like, it, it spreads like to inferior um, colliculi and the superior colliculi and get um, alarm calls, vocalizations that have to do with um, threat and with isolation. And so that makes mm-hmm. me think that there's some more automatic detection of those yeah. kinds of threats 
um, at a level below consciousness is kind of what I'm trying to get at. I I would need to see more data for that, but yeah, without trying to prove it wrong or right. I think that's interesting because, you know, look to go even bigger. Why do we feel lonely? It seems so maladaptive in today's society, given that we're on our computers all day long, but I think we are sometimes when we, I think when we study a deficit, we only look at individuals that are struggling with that signal, but that signal in and of itself has an adaptive role, right? So typically if you feel lonely, it probably is your body telling you like, Hey dude, like go out and like talk to people. (laughs) Yeah, you should, because otherwise Mm -hmm. you're not going to meet a mate. You're not going to make friends. You're not going to have all these things that are, are increase your survival rate. So I think it makes sense for a body to do this. The problem is, well, nature is ruthless is one problem. And the other one is that we live in a weird time and place, right? And so our brain system is not adapted to this environment. Yeah. Yeah. I guess one thing that I want to bring up, because I thought about it before and I forgot, but there is that one study in fruit flies. And so I think this is really cool because I don't know how many like neurons are in the brain of a fruit fly. It has to be very small, right? Five. Uh, Five? Okay. Uh, (laughs) Brittany, you probably know. Someone. I I didn't study fruit flies, but I did have um I did have a lab mate of mine who studied um memory like uh. just cognitive like cognitive decline in fruit flies. So they must have enough neurons. They have to actually have to study. <laughs> okay, yeah, more than I would have guessed. <laughs> That's nothing though. <laughs> but, but, um, they've shown that social, well, I would say it's when people talk about the study, they talk about that social isolation, um, caused, uh, mortality in these animals. But if you look more closely at the study, it's really more that if they gave them socially enriched environments, that their, um, lifespans increased and that they had like better health outcomes. So, uh, I, yeah, I know that they are social, but I know that's like kind of a newer frontier of understanding their behaviors. Um, but it's really amazing to see that affecting such a so an animal that would be so much more simplistic than us, um, but also one that we don't even consider to be as so, like a social man. Yeah, it's not a mammal, <laughs> but a social creature in the way that we are. Um, and there's still like real effects. Right. Yeah. Well, how about this concept? Um, I'll let you being the only male in our group. So there was a study on fruit flies and sex differences. And they found that, um, sorry, fruit flies, sex differences, and social isolation. They found that male fruit flies experienced more loneliness. I'm not sure how they measured loneliness, but they asked. Them. This is the same. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, they responded. They asked. Um, but this is also true. <laughs> but this is also true in 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 rats and in mice. Like that is incredibly well known that the male rats um, experience just higher physiological responses to social isolation. So, women. So, are, you, are you calling me, are you calling me a fruit fly? <laughs> <laughs> I'm calling you a fruit fly. I was the only fruit fly in this group. I'd like to respond to that. Well, you know, it's actually, uh, well, Marion, go ahead. Yeah. I just I want in hu- and the human results are, it's more in women, but so I put that out there. Okay. Really? That's, yeah, that's really? surprising. Okay. Yeah. I thought, I thought in this research study, it said that it happened more in. All right. Let's compare methods because oh. I am not buying it. I will. Um, I will search. No, I mean, I, I believe it, it in, but yeah. I'm searching for women. 
Well, you know, do we always have to win or lose? You know, we both feel lonely. <laughs> but I, I personally right. would say that I, I would find, I would be surprised about that because, you know, something I think has gotten some attention lately and not, but I think not enough is that I think men mm-hmm. are very socially isolated today, you know? And um, I, yeah. mean, I actually totally experienced it myself moving to Austin because mm-hmm. I, like I said, I'm a pretty, I think, resilient person. I think I'm also a very social person. And one of the things that I found difficult moving to Austin is that, you know, when I moved here, I was like about to turn 30. So I'm trying to meet people in my 30s. And like men in their 30s are freaking horrible to meet. Like they just We're like, are so they're so awkward and like honestly like every all these men that I met I'm like you're dumb and annoying and like I have nothing I just in common with you. I don't want to be friends with any of you people. Like I was like you guys are lame and then just like don't they're just awkward. They're very hard to get to know. But I mean I I would love to see what you guys have to say about the data. But I mean I think there's a lot of like lonely men out there and mm-hmm. um. I mean, I don't want to speculate too much, uh, but I think for whatever reason, I think maybe this is where the cultural stuff can come in a little bit. But I think culturally, we're just not taught to to socialize as much in some ways. And at least me, I think I'm different. I'm not going to lie. I think I'm, I mean, I've always been friends with a lot of women. So I actually ended up making friends with some women here too. And that was great. And I was like, oh my God, like these women were so much easier to become friends with. Like, it was ridiculous. Like, I was like, they would actually call you and be like, invite you to stuff and like, whatever. And like, anyway, so that's just my experience. And it's just something mm-hmm. that's made me f- glad that I'm not in a situation where it's that big of a deal for me. So it's, you know, it was kind of a bummer, but I eventually kind of got over it. Um, <laughs> just, just trying to get out. I wouldn't be uh, surprised if men are underreporting their loneliness in these studies to see the effects, um, but also in general. I'll just read you the sentence really quick from this paper, but... Uh, results mm-hmm. indicate that loneliness occurs in clusters within social networks and is disproportionately represented at the periphery of social networks, extends up to three degrees of separation and is stronger for women than men. But so that's one study. So maybe it's not like across the board. I know depression or at least suicide tends to be higher in men. So, yeah. So in animal models, so I, and I'll speak specifically to rats and, and mice, um, what they see as, I guess, a response to social isolation um, or a decline in just overall well-being is um, memory loss. <laughs> like they use things like memory loss. Um, I want to say they are, I got to find the paper actually, but um, let's see. Um, you know, they're more aggressive. I've done more research on this because I'm Googling it and, you know, you can find whatever you want on Google, right? I did yeah. find this. Mm-hmm. There's a study of 400,000 individuals that found no substantial gender difference in loneliness. And, you know, that actually... That I is a massive sample. Yeah, so... I like that. There we that go. Actually makes more yeah. That makes more sense. I like that too. <laughs> I just think that sometimes it's something that people haven't talked about enough, you know? And so I think mm, yeah. you're going to have loneliness for different reasons. There's always going to be some gender effect. And so just from my personal experience, that's more what I've noticed. It's more like... I think maybe the social networking part is what I see as different. Just especially because I've seen in Austin, like a lot of women, just such large friend groups, you know, and they, they really are very social and like they support each other emotionally more is I think the biggest difference, you know? And uh, like, if like when one of them is like, I mean, just so many, I mean, again, anecdotal, but um, 
I haven't been able to find that. And again, fortunately for me, you know, the situation I'm in, it's not the end of the world. And I basically just kind of adapted, you know, and, but it's something I've noticed, especially with age, like in their thirties, men in their thirties in particular. Mm -hmm. Well, there's also, um, there are also studies that suggest men who have higher testosterone feel, um, less lonely. Um, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Even even under isolated conditions, right? Long. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. Um and so I guess my question my question there would be, you know, what about women who have like above average testosterone? Like is that the like the hormone? Should we be looking at mm-hmm. a different marker for women? Um Yeah. Mm. I would think that there given that there's not too much if there's not too much difference between genders. I wonder. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, then if you want to like look at non-binary and people who are transitioning, I think loneliness Mm -hmm. spikes. I I was looking to like suicide definitely spikes. Um, but you can also imagine all the, you know, like, uh, societal conditions that can, um, you know, foster that, that would be completely independent of your biology. So, uh, oh, I was going to say for the, for the fellas, there's, uh, there's an empathy study. <laughs> fellas we want you to talk about your emotions some more but there's like i think there's a general idea in society that men um either can't communicate their emotions as well or they can't like um they can't perceive it as well and there's plenty of studies i think that show that that's kind of bullshit that much of it has to do with like uh the conditioning of society oh and, yeah and, i was so 100 percent social like in my in uh societal in my opinion yeah. So like one study that looks at this, um, it came from a lab, I think in Eugene, Oregon, like, uh, in 2006 or something, but it was, um, they were doing like the reading, the, um, reading emotions in the eye task. Right. So it's like, you get like a, a snippet of somebody's face and you have to say what emotion it is just by looking at the eyes. Right. And women tend to outperform men on this task by, I think it's something like 70%. Right. So they do um, outperform men. And overall, right? And so in this experiment, they they replicate that. And then what they do is then they pay participants for everyone they get right. And then women perform at the same rate while getting paid and men boost their performance to just as well as women. So like their interpretation was that like there, if there's no no extrinsic motivation for men to decode these emotions, they might not do it. And like in society, it makes sense where it's like women are either forced to do it or just highly incentivized to do it you're raising a baby, you're like, whatever, you know, maybe doing a social role in the family where you have to mediate relationships. So you have to like develop those skills and keep them going versus men are then like, their efforts tend to be reallocated to other things, you know, hunting. Mm. <laughs> what yeah. else do you men do? It Co- takes a lot coding. of time. I built the kitchen, kitchen island. Building the kitchen island. Yeah, it was incredibly <laughs> impressive too. That was <laughs> listening to podcasts. Yeah, I've been too busy to be lonely. <laughs> <laughs> i feel uh, like well, that was a dig at me <laughs> no i'm <laughs> actually kind of like serious though like it's kept me busy which has been nice you know during this time um but you know that's interesting you bring that up and i'm not sure i agree with that interpretation but i think what i would make sense to me is that they, the fact that men can't reach the same performance levels i completely agree like because it's it seems to me like that's a basic social cognitive function right to be able to detect and process emotions and i don't in my opinion <laughs> I think I agree. Like most men don't seem deficient in that. What they seem deficient in is sort of like the, it's more of like a confidence and sort of like a, 
accept it doesn't seem as acceptable because i think women would have no problem being like hey if you know you're feeling bad call me and i'll talk to you if you need to cry mm-hmm. talk to me like women have no problem telling that to other women that men would never say that honestly like very few men would say something like that you know all right so the issue is we have to um encourage men to speak their mind it's 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 hurting everybody it's no good for anybody i think it's so interesting that i mean obviously we all have very demanding jobs but half of the people on this call are like I've been too busy to be lonely. And then me and Marianne are just like, we've been lonely this whole entire time. And well, she's just I think, I think, uh, <laughs> at least as far as I'm concerned, it was busy with non-work stuff. And I think Nadia said something really interesting. So in terms of the too busy to be lonely things, she just started a master's program. She's been really busy. And I think she's felt a little bit of that of like the too busy to be lonely thing. And then she mm-hmm. said something really interesting. She's because I was like, hey, you know, we haven't hung out because we haven't hung out with anybody. I mean, we've been like, mm-hmm. it was more just a sort of thing where I was like, where do you draw the line? So we just drew the line at forget it, you know? And, uh, mm-hmm. but then I was like, you know, I think seeing people here and there is not the end of the world. So I was like, we should try to think about who, who do we think is being reasonably, you know, safe and try to hang out with them in a reasonable situation like outdoors or whatever. And, Nadia at first was hesitant. She was like, nah, I'm good. Yeah. Because you kind of just got used to not hanging out with people. But then one day she realized, you know, I realized I don't miss my friends. I need my friends. Because she she's not that socially needy of a person. But she she realizes that after hanging out with friends, you feel better. You know? And mm-hmm. so I think it's just that goes to show That's how true. low level of a thing it is, you know? I think that goes back to what we were talking about with this like self-perpetuating cycle of isolation too, where it's like, yeah, the lonelier you are, like you almost like don't even want to expend the social energy, right? Like you don't, like you're, you're more suspect maybe of the people around you, like less trusting and it, it makes you isolate further versus if you like actually force yourself to have social contact, even if it's awkward and weird or something, because maybe yeah. there are people that like, you're not very close with, or even if you just don't feel like you're best, so you think like, uh, I'm not a good conversation right now or whatever, you know? I think after that, you still like recharge something. That doesn't yeah. sound scientific, but I feel like it still does something to reaffirm that you're you're not actually physically alone. Well, and I think I related to that. Um, like I said, I sort of said we had some Zoom fatigue. So we kind of, caught, I mean, at first it was like, hey, let's Zoom with everybody. And then I got to a point that I was like, eh, I don't want to do that anymore. And then we kind of didn't do it for like a month. And then we did do it again another time and afterwards we were like buzzing you know and so this is sort of i want to use this to transition a little bit to the topic of like how can technology help us in the situation what things can it do and what things can it do and to me that was a very real proof of like i was able to fulfill some social need through zoom you know um and because so much of the media coverage has been on like Zoom is deficient because of the eye contact thing. So you don't make direct eye contact with people you're talking to. You don't have touch. You don't have feel. There's awkward Do you pauses. make direct eye contact with people when you're face to face? I'm always avoiding eye contact. <laughs> well, Marianne, the average person. Does. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
but you know, there's, there's not the social cues that are more complex and you're not picking up on your normal social cues. So a lot of the media has focused on that. But after that personal experience, I really felt like, I think it's obvious to me that it is helpful. So I wonder what you guys think about that. Um, I, I, I mean, I agree with what you said. Um, I haven't felt any Zoom fatigue. Um, so can you just elaborate a little bit on that? Well, you know, I think at some point, like, so at the very beginning of the pandemic, one of the things that was really nice mm-hmm. was that a lot of friends that I hadn't seen in a while reached out, people from college, and we made a WhatsApp chat. And we were basically just like on a weekly basis or by a big weekly basis doing a big Zoom. And I think um, I just start, got tired of it. Just It just was annoying at some point. Like it just didn't, it drained me more than it recharged me, I think, doing a Zoom call. And it's, it was also at a time when, mm-hmm there was zoom calls for work and this and that and i think what i realized was not so much was the social thing it was it was when we we're having larger zoom calls with like 10 people and i think i yeah. realized mm-hmm. oh there's just too many things that are technologically speaking not working that are knowing me but when i have a zoom with like somebody who's like two two people three people four people it's still very rewarding um mm-hmm. so that's that's sort of the thing that i noticed yeah I've enjoyed it. I'm not gonna lie. Do I mean maybe? Yeah, I don't know. Marianne, you had a different opinion, right? You you are kind of sick of Zoom. I mean, I'm negative about almost everything. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, all right, all right. So why do you, why do you think? Do you, do you think it's because it's like so obviously deficient to you, or? I have so I've hated Zoom for mostly for work events, especially work social events yeah. is where I really Those hate them. Cause you're kind of like, just, you're locked in. It's really hard to, I don't know. I feel like that you're always on display, even though maybe not everyone's looking at your face. I feel like you don't really have a moment of like not being self-aware or not being self-conscious about it. And like, you're also like just locked like in your part of like social gatherings for work is like getting outside of work and you have no context shift in zoom and you're like just locked in your chair the entire day and like I don't know I just feel like if I'm gonna have a social hour I want to be I want to go out I want to do something I want to I want to feel different in my body you want to dance I get it I do want I I, I mean there's there's, there's, that's missing too I (laughs) I think one interesting thing is that uh it's the word thing really because already so many people so much of your life is revolving around work and people have self-reported yeah. mm-hmm. they're working more than usual and so i think forcing these social events about, about work it's like adding even more piling on even more and another factor is that and this is actually why i didn't like zoom either at first was i just thought the design of it you know like it's 2020 you know we were supposed to have flying cars and then we have zoom and it's like, why am I looking at myself right now? I don't want to see myself. I want to see you guys, you know? Like, why do I need to be self-aware of my own thing? And this relates to what you were saying. I think a big part of it is, like, you typically don't have that social experience that's kind of like social media-esque, which is, like, you're so, so self-aware, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I totally get it, yeah. I can see that. Well, mm. that work. <laughs> I have to go finish some stuff. Yeah, I was gonna say we're wi- we're winding down. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe we can. How should we? Let's try to end this on a positive note. <laughs> yeah. Well. No. All right. Let's not end this on a positive. <laughs> no, the world is just hell. Going to hell in a handbasket, you know. 
<laughs> no, I think what I wanted to say that's positive. I, I think this the one good thing about this, I think it has called attention to what I would say is a bit of like a social epidemic of loneliness and it's a health problem. I think some people are more aware of it now than they were before. And I think we're also aware now how technology is going to play a role in this. I'm not so optimistic that we're going to do the right thing as a society to actually improve those technologies. Uh, but, you know, at least maybe you can try to take more control of your own personal technology usage, knowing that their research out there can, you know, guide that. I like that. Um, maybe one positive note I would put out is you are not alone in your loneliness. And while that doesn't really help, <laughs> it might help for a moment and then it doesn't actually do that much for you. Um, if you do keep that in mind and remember that there can be, uh, like, I'll, I'll say safe space. Sorry, everybody. I know no one likes that word anymore, but there can be spaces where you can express that vulnerability. Um, I think there's plenty of 12 step programs, you know, even ones that don't have to do with addiction, like ones that have to do with like codependency or being raised by alcoholics like Al-Anon. Um, where I think a lot of people feel these things and they come together on Zoom right now uh, and it's a different experience um, and sometimes you can just listen and sometimes you'll want to participate and whatever you want to do is fine but it's like um, I don't know I feel like if part of the barriers in overcoming loneliness is that you now become so highly suspect of all social relations that you don't even want to try to break the loneliness uh, those are nice spaces to try breaking them before you go and reinsert yourself into the rest of society. Yeah. So don't hate on Zoom. They don't, don't hate on the context of Zoom and realize that you can use it as a tool if you find yeah. the right group, just like anything in life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Find a yeah. way yeah. to really good, like, There's some really good like music ones too. Oh, like so what? Uh, yeah. Well, if I can squeeze in one more anecdote. Um, okay. So, this is what really kind of made me realize technology is the problem, you know? So in HBM, the human brain, uh, what is it? Organization human for brain human mapping? brain mapping conference. They mm -hmm. had a club night and I was actually a participant or like organizer partial for the club night. And so what they had, they had this thing called gather town, which basically is like zoom, but you walk around and it's trying to address the fact that there's too many people talking at once. So you can only talk to people that you're physically nearby. And it was a complete mm -hmm. success because they had that. And then we had a room where people were playing games. And so I was a game master and they had another room. So after I finished being game master, they had another room where they actually hired a DJ to play a live set on Zoom for four hours. I missed that part. And dude, I literally just turned all my lights off and I started dancing like for real <laughs> for like an hour. And there was like the chair of human of OHBM for 2020 was also dancing. She's like 70. <laughs> And it was amazing. Like afterwards, I was like, holy crap, I felt like my dopamine just going crazy. So it made me realize, you know, it's a difficult time and we're figuring it out. But like at the end of the day, we are all still there for each other. And if we use technology the right way and we actually try to do it in a way that's beneficial, it has the potential to do it, you know? We need to bring back yeah. chat roulette. Chat roulette. Oh, my goodness. I thought, I thought <laughs> chat roulette still existed. Does it not? Oh, does I don't even know. I thought I got taken down for too many wieners, but maybe it's so like Also, would not doubt that. Can we just end like a minute before that? <laughs> <laughs> I know. All right, well. Wait, we didn't give Brittany and Megan a chance to say their positive notes. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, it was just like, um, 
Guys, I, I can't really speak too much of it because as I mentioned in the beginning, I haven't actually felt any of the perils from just being socially isolated. I really haven't. Um, and again, it could probably just be that I'm just, I'm not aware. So perhaps I'll use this time moving forward to be more self-aware of what I'm actually feeling. Um, and whoever ends up listening to this, I encourage them to do the same because thanks Alec, for saying the obvious of me not being self-aware of, <laughs> of how I actually feel. But I know we can on a positive yeah. note, Brittany is actually depressed. I, <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't she may not know it yet, but she Yeah, right. Like <laughs> you can you can no, the positive note here is you can be whatever you want to be. <laughs> if, you, if, if you try hard enough, okay. So, um <laughs> anyway. Just be a, just be like desperately trying to finish a thesis. That's the key. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's what killed me. Honestly, most of quarantine has felt like the last year of trying to finish my thesis, where it's like I'm tied to my computer and I like my attention's all over the place and like. So I, so I'm just gonna like go on a tiny little tangent. Did you guys ever feel like like time wasn't on your side? Because I almost feel like after maybe Ali, you can probably attest this a little bit more, but I feel like after the sixth year. I'm kind of just like, what is time? So that I maybe that's why I'm a little bit more lax about it. And also, if you're unfunded, if you're an unfunded graduate student, um, you just have less pressure to like finish like at a certain time. So just off I'm unfunded. Time? So that's all I have to say. What is time? <laughs> I have time no idea. Time is a construct. I mean, if you're asking, did I feel time pressure? Yes, I always felt time pressure. Even though Tor told me I could stay another year, that almost felt like a threat <laughs> in a way. It was like, not another year. I need to move on. That is hilarious. Yeah. I, I, I was very explicitly told that I had to get the hell out of there. So yeah, I definitely felt time pressure. <laughs> Megan, what's your positive note? Um, I think just learning how to focus on spending time with friends and family and getting enough sleep and all that jazz is, has just been an important reminder. Hopefully next time we talk, the half of us that's lonely won't be as lonely. Maybe the pandemic will end and you'll take all these lessons that you learned and you're going to live your absolute best life after it's all over. Right. Or yeah. we just completely forget everything and like <laughs> simulate well, shit to each likely. other. That's more yeah. likely. Go immediately back to normal. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I feel like a lot of this, like, like society kind of like shed off us in a way. And like when that skin is off, you just see that people are still good people that care about one another. Yeah. Um, nothing. Yeah. If anything, I, pe- I think people have come more together. You know, people risk their health to come out and protest, you know, in solidarity with people they don't know and maybe races that they're not a part of. That to me is a big deal. I mean, we're living, I have to say, the one thing I've enjoyed about this whole time is that it, I am a big fan of sci fi and it's the first time that I really feel like I'm living in a sci fi novel. So. Yeah. That's been kind of fun. And now, honest, I'm like legit not kidding. Fun. I'm like, if the world's going to be so <laughs> twisted, it might as well be interesting, you know? I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not of that opinion. <laughs> well, no, but, you know, it's I'm cool to see the positive. I feel like I've experienced the most trauma in this circle. Can we can we say that? Yes. Okay. Marianne, what if it's I'd, say, I'd rather have a boring life than like have any more explosions or like 
<laughs> I oh, no, 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 I don't want to have trauma. I'm just saying uh, it's been interesting to see. Like I said, that's why I'm really focused on the, the way that technology can be used positively. Because I'm like, I really do think, you know, even when times change, like it doesn't all have to be bad. And like you said, when people yeah. come together and you see the human side of everybody, yeah. And, it's they had definitely has been that there's been a very corny aspect of it too with like people like advertisements selling you that but i've definitely mm-hmm. felt that genuinely like i I mean i talked to people that i really haven't talked to in the decade like my college friends more than ever so there's yeah. been some positive takeaways yeah i think that's a nice note to end it on i agree yeah thank you yeah okay the podcast over bye for listening to Smooth Drain. This episode was brought to you by absolutely no one. We want to thank our good friend Kyle, who goes by Ystraps on Instagram, W-H-Y-S-T-R-A-P-Z, who wrote the music for this podcast. He's really talented. Check him out. Thank you for tuning in. Oh, and let us know if there are any topics you'd like us to cover in the future. Also, let us know if you even think there should be a future. Thanks.